So, good morning and welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. Happy Easter. Let's just do this. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin. Thanks for being willing to chat with each other, by the way. Father, thank you so much again for inviting us into your presence. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate um, the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and the the pivotal moment that that is, uh, not just for believers, but for everyone. And so, Father, I pray today that we would be impacted deeply uh, by the resurrection of your son and uh, the implication uh, of that event on our lives. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's always interesting to take a look online, uh, on the covers of magazines. It's interesting to go to the news feed on your phone and uh, to open it up and see what the top stories are, right? Because essentially what those are, what they're telling you is this is what's most relevant for today, or this is what's most relevant for this week. Over the course of the last few days, I've been doing that. I've been paying attention to what uh, the news media is telling us is most relevant. And here's what is most relevant for this last week. Number one, the fire at Notre Dame. Can't really see it too well, but it's a picture of Notre Dame on fire there. Worthily something uh, that uh, we are paying attention to. Uh, The second thing that showed up a lot on our news feeds this week is Tiger winning the Masters when nobody thought he would, not even he thought he would. So cool. Uh, Number three, the release of the Mueller report, right? So some of you guys have been paying close attention to that. Again, pretty worthy, pretty relevant. Uh, Legalization of marijuana. Seems like that's always a constant, uh, or at least in the last few years, that's been something that's pretty, you know, pretty uh, prevalent in the news. Uh, Ilhan Omar and the conversation around Israel. Seems like that's a pretty uh, she seems to be rising up right now and, and pretty relevant in the news scene. Uh, potentially the most relevant thing of the week <laughs> is Avengers Endgame, which, as my children have alerted me, comes out on April 26th. Is that correct? Yeah, it is right. All right. And then the last thing, Game of Thrones Season 8. And you can't see that picture at all because it's tiny and dark, but I promise it's Game of Thrones. Anyway, I've never seen any of those, not a single episode, but I would love to. So what's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, but what didn't appear on my news feed, what didn't appear on CNN, what didn't appear on Fox News, what didn't appear on the BBC, was anything about Easter. Not a word, at least not until this morning, uh, with some of the bombings that occurred in Sri Lanka. Now clearly, I'm biased, but I think the message of Easter is without a doubt the most relevant and important story, not only of this week, but also in human history. Part of the reason that the message of Easter is not in view this week is because we've morphed, we've changed the life, the person, and the claims of Jesus into something that's just a little bit more palatable for our Western sensibilities, right? We've, we've tried to morph them into something that we are okay with. Uh, there's a man named Andrew Sullivan who was the former editor, is the former editor of the New Republic, and he's a weekly columnist for the Sunday Times of London. He wrote an article recently called Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. Here's what he had to say in part in this article. He's talking about Thomas Jefferson. And he says, Thomas Jefferson believed that stripped of the doctrines of the incarnation, resurrection, and the various miracles, the message of Jesus was the deepest miracle. So it wasn't actually the events around Jesus' life that were important. It was the message of Jesus. And that, it was radically simple. It was explained in stories, parables, and metaphors, not theological doctrines of immense complexity. It was proven by his willingness to submit himself 
to an unjustified execution. The cross itself was not the point, nor was the intense physical suffering he endured. The point was how he conducted himself through it all, calm, loving, accepting, radically surrendering even the basic control of his own body, and telling us that this was what it means to truly transcend our world and to be with God. Jesus, like Francis, was a homeless person, as were his closest followers. He possessed nothing and thereby everything. Now, I don't know if you could tell, maybe it would be easier for you to read the whole article, but essentially two questions arise from this article by Andrew Sullivan. The first was, or is, did the resurrection really happen? And Sullivan's answer is probably not, or almost definitely not. And then his second question is, does it really matter? And again, his answer to that question is that the physical resurrection of Christ doesn't matter at all. Rather, what matters is the content of Jesus' message, which was stuff like love your enemies, totally true, love your neighbor as yourself, again, very true, rejection of power and possessions, all those things. That was what was really important, not whether he really died on the cross, not whether he really was the Son of God, not really whether he uh, rose again on the third day, but the message of Jesus what was ultimately the most important. And he's basically saying that other stuff is essentially irrelevant. It's really not that important. Now, I could respond today by preaching a sermon that was uh, basically an apologetic sermon, and I'm going to read some of the points that I would say if I were preaching that sermon. I would point to uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, where in 45 AD, he says, look, there are over 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, along with Peter and the other disciples. The Gospels, all written between 40 and 90 AD, claim a historical resurrection based upon eyewitness testimony. And essentially what Paul was saying, and Luke would have been saying, and anybody who wrote these Gospels would have been saying is, look, there are all these eyewitnesses. If you doubt our word, go ask them. There's over 500 of them, right? We could talk about that. What did it mean that there were actually people alive until 90 AD who had claimed to witness the resurrected Christ? We could have gone and asked them. I could talk about the role of women in the narrative of the gospel, how Jesus appeared first to women, right? Tim Keller has this to say. He says, each gospel states that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women, Women's low social status meant that their testimony was not even admissible as evidence in court. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women. It could only have undermined the credibility of their testimony. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is if they really had. In other words, if the message or the, the story of Jesus' resurrection had been fabricated, there's no way that they would have included women as the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. It would have been a terrible way to create a false story. Keller's response is the reason why women are reported to have seen Jesus first is because they really did. I could talk about the fact that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then when the Christians claimed that he had, then the Pharisees or the Romans could have produced the body of Christ to disprove the claims of the Christians but they didn't. Some people have argued that the early church stole Jesus' body. However, the Christians couldn't have stolen Jesus' body, or it would have been incredibly difficult with armed centurions guarding the tomb. And even if they could have, they, that is the disciples who had stolen Jesus' body, they would have known that it was a lie, that it was a hoax. 
and people don't die for something that they know to be false or something they know to be a hoax. Some people criticize or try to undermine the resurrection by saying, well, you know, ancient people were predisposed to believe in a physical resurrection. However, neither the Jews nor the Greeks were predisposed to believe in a bodily resurrection. The Greeks were Gnostic. In other words, what they, they believed in the separation of spirit and body. They believed that spirit was good and body was bad. So the idea of someone rising from the dead in a union of spirit and body would have been unthinkable to them. And the Jews only believed in the physical resurrection at the very end of time, and so they wouldn't have been predisposed to believe in the physical resurrection of Christ in the meantime. I could talk about how there were seven messianic movements in the first century and how six of them fizzled out and went nowhere because their leaders died. And yet, somehow, Christianity survived. In fact, it exploded, and it was based precisely upon a resurrection-centric view of reality and the followers of Christianity who worshipped Jesus as divine. This would have been blasphemy for the Jews. It would have been unthinkable for the Greeks. I could try to convince you with all these arguments, as good as they are and as compelling as they may, may be, about the relevance of Easter and the resurrection. Or I could tell you a story, and that's what I'm going to do today. I could tell you a story about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. I could tell you a story about Jesus appearing to Peter and to John, or the travelers on the Emmaus Road, or even Paul in Acts chapter 9. But instead, I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Thomas, who many of you are familiar with. Thomas, sometimes we call him Doubting Thomas, was clearly a skeptic. In fact, the term Doubting Thomas has its own Wikipedia page because people across cultures understand the intent of that term Doubting Thomas. If Thomas was a Winnie Winnie the Pooh character, he would be Eeyore for sure, no doubt. Negative, down, pessimistic, the glass is half empty, he's the consummate wet blanket. The Gospel of John tells us he was called Didymus, which means twin, and so it seems that he probably was one of two. He was a twin, and so we don't know why he was such a grump. Maybe his brother was the athlete, or maybe he was the good-looking kid, or maybe he was the smart one, or maybe his parents liked his brother better, but for whatever reason, Thomas was the resident curmudgeon amongst the 12 disciples. Now, there are three narratives that highlight Thomas, and so we're going to read through those three narratives And uh, and we're going to talk about why this ultimately impacts our view of the resurrection. We're going to start in John chapter 11. And so in John chapter 11 is where Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus has died. We'll begin at uh, verse 3. So the sisters, that is, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus 
had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So we see two things about Thomas here. Thomas and the other disciples had a belief issue. Jesus said that Lazarus' death had occurred in part so that you may believe. In other words, the disciples at this point were either unbelievers or at least there was something yet that they didn't believe. And this story shows us that even though Thomas was a little bit negative, at least he was loyal. I love that line there. Let us also go that we may die with him. All right, that's John chapter 11. We see Thomas, the curmudgeon, the skeptic, the doubter. But then we see him in John chapter 14. Start reading in John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The disciples, Thomas included, still in John chapter 14, did not fully believe in Jesus. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Have you ever had a friend who says the thing that everyone is thinking, but everybody else is too embarrassed to say? Have you ever had the friend who asks the question that uh, everybody else is thinking, but they're too embarrassed to ask? That's Thomas, right? And I absolutely love his honesty. In fact, it was Thomas' honesty that led to the greatest truth claim in the history of humanity. Listen to verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I can just imagine Jesus saying that with a smile. Did he understand and appreciate Thomas's honesty? The text doesn't tell us, but I think Jesus may have grinned as he responded to Thomas. Like in John chapter 10, the issue here is belief, or more specifically, unbelief. Apparently, Thomas believed in God and presumably believed something about Jesus. He probably believed that Jesus was a prophet, or at least a rabbi, And maybe even he believed that he was the Messiah, but Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was the way. He did not believe that Jesus was the truth or the life. Again, it shouldn't be doubting Thomas, but maybe in this case, it should be unbelieving Thomas. John 11, John 14. Now, let's look at John 20. Again, belief is the central issue here. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That is, Jesus had already appeared to the other disciples after his resurrection, but Thomas hadn't been with them. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So the disciples are recounting to Thomas the story of Jesus' resurrection and his appearance to them in that very room. And you can imagine how excited the disciples are. He told us, peace be with us. He showed us his hands. He showed us his side. He breathed upon us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He even gave us the power to forgive sins. Thomas, however, 
was unmoved. And what is insinuated in the previous accounts of Thomas interacting with Jesus in John chapter 11 and John chapter 14, Thomas makes unequivocal here in John chapter 20. He says, I do not, I will not believe unless he appears to me too. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put them into my side. Stop doubting and believe. We have a picture by Caravaggio here on the screen. You can't quite see it. It's not big enough, and it's pretty dark, but it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And in this picture, what we see is we see Jesus revealing his, uh, his side, where the spear went into his side, and we see Thomas peering into the wound to see if it's real, and Jesus has his hand by the wrist, and he's pulling Thomas' fingers to feel the wound in his side in order that Thomas may believe. Now listen to how Thomas responds in verse 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so finally, Thomas believes. He believes not only that Jesus is risen, but he believes that Jesus is God. Finally, Thomas understands and believes that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And once you piece all of these things together, it makes a great story with a great ending. But is that all that we know about Thomas? We hear a bit more about him in Acts chapter 1. We're told that he and the other disciples gathered together for prayer. Afterwards, we read about Peter and James and John, but we don't hear anything else about Thomas in the New Testament. So what happened to him? What happened to Thomas? Did his belief stick? Did the mountaintop experience fade away? Eusebius of Caesarea records that his teacher, Pentaneus, while traveling the world, stumbled upon a Christian community in India in the second century. So we have to ask, how in the world did the message of Christianity make its way all the way to India? A number of third and fourth century historians, Ambrose of Milan, Gregory of Nazianus, Jerome, Ephraim the Syrian, Eusebius of Caesarea, all record Thomas traveling to India with the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, church history records that Thomas died in 72 AD, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in what is now Chennai, India, 3,126 miles away from Jerusalem as the crow flies. If you remember, there were two questions about the resurrection from the article we read at the beginning. One was, did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? And two, did it really happen? And two, does it matter? What do you think Thomas would say? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I think he would say, if he didn't, why in the world would I have gone to India? <laughs> does the resurrection matter? I think Thomas would say, it's the difference between life and death. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with the story of Thomas? He clearly gave up everything because of his 
witness to Jesus, the risen Lord. And so one of the things that I would invite you to do is I would invite you to investigate Jesus. Some of you sitting here today may be Thomases in your own right. You may be skeptical of Jesus' resurrection and definitely his claim to be God, but at least you believe that Jesus was a great teacher like Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. You're comfortable with him in that place in human history and even in your life. But C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity argues that a more careful examination of Jesus doesn't actually allow for that. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I would encourage you, if you're a skeptic, to investigate the life of Jesus. What else would I leave you with this morning? I would leave you with a reminder that God loves skeptics, right? He's not scared off by your skepticism. He's not overly offended by your doubts. Many of you in this room undoubtedly are skeptics. Maybe that's the way God wired you. Uh, You need to know that your skepticism is no more a barrier to God than your sin is. Not only did Jesus die and rise for Thomas, he called him to be a disciple from the very beginning And then at the very end, Jesus appeared to Thomas in order that he, Thomas, might believe. And then finally, what do we do with this message on Easter Sunday? For those of us who do believe in this risen Lord, we can have hope. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so back to our first two questions. Is Easter relevant? The answer is that it makes all the difference in this world and in the next. Did the resurrection of Jesus really occur Look at Thomas. Why would he have spent 40 years of his life on a 3,000-mile journey to die on the other side of the world for something that he knew was a hoax? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that we would see um, the resurrection with new eyes. And Father, for those of us um, who are skeptical, Father, I pray that maybe just this message of Thomas today would drive us to look more closely at your son, Jesus, and who he claimed to be. And Father, for those of us who do trust in you um, and in your son, Jesus, for our salvation, I pray that this message of Easter and of the resurrection today would give us hope as we think about those that we have lost and loved, Father, and that we might be truly encouraged 
and that we might be overjoyed knowing, Father, that not only one day will we rise again from the dead, but those that we have lost will rise again from the dead as well. And I pray that that would give us joy. Father, I pray that it would give us courage um, to live the lives that you have called us to live. And Father, I pray that at that same uh, seeing and viewing of the resurrected body of your son Jesus um, would help us to know that you love us and that you are for us. I pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.